Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When Diplomacy Fails presents. Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to Hello when Diplomacy Hello and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails. A project five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails special on World War I the Dutch Revolt To the When Diplomacy Fails special on the Thirty Years' War The July Crisis Anniversary Project The Swedish Deluge Britain Goes to War The 1916 To the Rising. Franco-Dutch War of 1672 This is When Diplomacy Fails Remastered This is the second part of When Diplomacy Fails Remastered Look at the Russo-Turkish War of 1877, which was originally aired as one episode on the 27th of November 2012. Welcome back to the war. Last time we talked surprisingly little about Russians, Turks or their war considering the name of the topic at hand, and instead we brought you through the scenic route of European interest and national ambition. With Otto von Bismarck in place for Germany, Benjamin Disraeli and Britain, Europe seemed in safe, conservative hands, yet events were conspiring to upset the perfect order which both men had in mind, and these events seemed to consistently emanate out of that darned Ottoman Empire. I will now take you to 1875, but first, stopwatches at the ready because this is a 20-second Patreon advertisement. Oh boy. Okay, so one, two, three, go. So, if you go to wdfpodcast.com, you will find the Patreon button, which you can click and then become a Patreon, and then you will enjoy really good gifts, and on top of that, you you will also, uh, 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 you will also, oh crap, um, okay, so, so go to patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails, and you'll get some really, really good benefits, and thanks very much. I don't know why I got so stressed there. Okay, so you know what to do, guys. I will now take you 
<sighs> I'm so panicked now. My heart's beating really fast. I want to take you to 1875. I have brought myself, by long meditation, to the conviction that a human being with a settled purpose must accomplish it, and that nothing can resist a will which will stake even existence upon its fulfilment. Benjamin Disraeli In 1875, Otto von Bismarck was above all concerned with maintaining Germany's security. This was not as easy a task as it may have seemed for the supremely powerful and victorious superstate now at the heart of Europe. The major concern continued to revolve around France and the French efforts to achieve revenge upon Germany after Berlin's victory in the previous war, as well as the small matter of its seizure of Alsace-Lorraine. With the French threat in mind, he orchestrated his diplomatic web to net a series of important allies, always to the detriment of the French, and with French isolation foremost in his mind. Thus, when words started to filter in that France had added a total of 144,000 new soldiers to her army in an attempt to bolster national confidence, alarm bells began to ring in Bismarck's mind. These alarm bells turned to blazing sirens when rumours began to emerge that France was seeking and in many cases coming to an understanding with Austria. While it would seem almost obvious to us that the two states which Prussia had made war on in the last nine years would decide to team up against Germany, Bismarck was furious at these rumours, whatever their truth. In his efforts to perhaps scare France back into a rightful place as a second-class state in Europe, Bismarck escalated the situation, dropping hints that a preventative war against France was both necessary and underway, Bismarck used his favourite newspaper, the Berliner Post, to plant a story about the situation on the 8th of April 1875, entitled, Ist Krieg in Sicht, or Is War in Sight? For Odo Russell, the British ambassador to Berlin, the whole Bismarckian policy of threatening and making war had worn holes in his patience, as he let Lord Derby, the British Foreign Secretary, know all about it, writing... Bismarck is at his old tricks again, alarming the Germans through the officious press and intimating that the French are going to attack them and that Austria and Italy may join in. This crisis will blow over like so many others, but Bismarck's sensational policy is very wearisome at times. Half the diplomatic body have been here yesterday to tell me that war was imminent, and yet when I seek to calm their nerves, they think I am bamboozled by Bismarck. I do not, as you know, believe in another war with France. Crazy as it may sound to us now, the very idea that France was increasing the size of her army was nearly enough to provoke another war between the two states in 1875. Or was it? Jonathan Steinberg commented on the situation, writing, The crisis developed as both Bismarck and the French foreign minister tried to blame the other. On the 21st of April 1875, the French ambassador to Germany was told by a high official in the German foreign office that a preventative war would be entirely justified if France continued to rearm. Indeed, it would be politically, philosophically, and even in Christian terms, as it was put, entirely justified. The Prussian military began to consider preventative war and leaked their comments. The French used the bad reputation that the Prussians now had to alarm the other European powers and the Kaiser as well. Lord Darby observed that, 
Bismarck either is really bent on making war or he just wants us to believe that he is bent on it. But British Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli was more committed to European affairs than his predecessor, Gladstone, had been. And rather than get himself into a tizzy or ignore the whole situation, he appealed to the Russian Tsar of all people to calm the Germans down. So, on the back of this, Tsar Alexander II and his Chancellor Gorchakov travelled to Berlin to urge calm with respect to France. And it was here that Bismarck suffers his first reversal in the game of diplomacy. From the 10th to 13th of May, 1875, the German capital hosted the Russian entourage. Kaiser Wilhelm was, for his part, horrified at the idea that Germany needed the Russians to ensure that it acted sanely, and he chastised Bismarck for this in a letter sent to him on the first night of that entourage arriving, writing that, It brings me great displeasure to see the slump in prestige this court has come to enjoy. Please pull whatever fantasies you have involving war with France out of your mind, because I cannot approve of them and I am deeply embarrassed that you would think I do. Jonathan Steinberg described what happened next. Gorchakov and Odo Russell confronted Bismarck on the 13th of May and tried to get him to declare publicly that he had no intention of attacking France. He refused, but had lost face. He had to give in to the pressure put on him by the Tsar and his own Kaiser, the first serious reverse he had suffered. Tsar Alexander II also commented on the event, noting scathingly on Bismarck's general policy the next day on the 14th of May that One should not believe the half of what he says, for he says things he does not really mean. These words are mere expressions of his passions and his momentary nervous excitement. One must never take him au pied de la lettre. Whether or not Bismarck really intended to actually make war against France, we'll never know. But he didn't have long to lament on his recent humiliation, since in the July of 1875, as we covered near the tail end of last time's episode, revolts began to break out in Herzegovina. It was in the context of impending war between Germany and France then, not to mention the uneasiness with which Bismarck viewed his supposed allies, that events in the East began to spiral out of control. This brings us back to the situation with the revolts in April 1876, when the call for action by the Russian people in defence of their Slavic brethren, and the calls of condemnation by everyone else, pulled apart whatever plans for a lasting peace that Bismarck had in place. At first it seemed as though it would be resolved diplomatically though, as the so-called Andrasy Note, named after Austro-Hungarian Foreign Minister Count Julius Andrasy, sought to resolve the issues in the Balkans by demanding reforms be implemented by the Ottoman Empire and that the Sultan assure the other powers that his empire's treatment of the peoples, especially Christian peoples, in the Balkans would change. However, just when it seemed as though the entire situation could be diffused, Herzegovina refused to comply with the note and rejected it out of hand, explaining that the note didn't go far enough and that the Sultan had promised to reform before but he'd failed to do so. This was in January 1876, and by July the situation had got out of control, with diplomacy no longer looking like a viable option. At that time the revolts in the Balkans were ongoing. Serbia had declared war, Greece looked like it might follow suit, and reports of atrocities were filtering back through the various diplomatic channels. The need to act increased the tensions among the Three Emperors League that Bismarck had set in place, and once the German and French consuls in Thessalonica, or Salonica as the Ottomans called it, on the fringes of Ottoman-held territory were murdered, Bismarck agreed to escalate the situation and actually conduct a show of force against the Ottomans, 
in the hope that the Ottomans would then see sense and implement the badly needed reforms so that the Balkans would then become peaceful again. Bismarck had organised a meeting between the foreign ministers of the three emperors on the 11th to the 14th of May on 1876 in an effort to create a united foreign policy between the three states. It was here that the pan-Slav party of Russian politics began to emerge with the goal of guiding Russian policy. Austrian and German policymakers noted the rise in these interests on behalf of Russia and began to fear the implications of an unpredictable or rash policy action. If Russia did act in such a way, outmaneuvering them in the process, she would have absolute control over the Balkan theatre, and the Austrian emperor Franz Josef feared that the minorities that dwelt in his own empire would seek to join such a Slav superstate, especially if it was directly supported by Russia. But Franz was encouraged to negotiate with the Tsar while he still could, and both planned for the division of spoils once the Ottoman Empire collapsed. The plan was for Austria-Hungary to occupy Bosnia-Herzegovina, and for Russia to annex Bessarabia back into its empire, land it had lost during the Crimean War, to Turkey. This brings us to another side note that we're going to have to cover at this time, the Romanian War of Independence. So let's face it, the Balkans as a group of states is pretty hard to place in your head, especially so now when all those tiny states broke away from Yugoslavia in the 1990s, but for now, for this episode, the easiest way to imagine the Balkan states is with this mind map. So imagine the Black Sea is a semicircle, or capital C. Starting from the top of that letter, imagine we have first, obviously, the Russian territory, next what would in 1878 become Romania, and next what would become Bulgaria. By now we're about halfway down the letter C, so I hope you're still with me. So the bottom half of the C is the little bit of Ottoman territory on the fringe of Greece that the Ottomans managed to hold on to after the Greek War for Independence in 1829. This included Thessalonica, as we saw earlier. The bottom part of the sea is pretty much what we know as the Dardanelles, housing Istanbul and the floods of shipping coming in and out of the Mediterranean. Hopefully that makes things a little bit easier for you guys without the luxury of a map in front of you. It's important to remember where everything is so that once little states in the Balkans start making noise, like right now for example, you're able to understand why all this was such a big deal. Bessarabia, which Austria-Hungary agreed to let Russia annex, was just above Romania and would eventually become part of Romania after this war. If you want to make things slightly more complicated, Serbia was attached to the western borders of Romania and Bulgaria, and largely stretches across those borders in their entirety. Bosnia, Herzegovina and the other Balkan states are to the west then of Serbia, and stretch along Serbia's borders. Confused? Well, I'm afraid you're going to have to rewind for approximately 10 seconds and try again, because we're stuck with this beautifully complex animation right up to the First World War and beyond, guys so you do well to just have a rough understanding of it. Keep in mind, though, that at this time pretty much all of the Balkans, from Romania to Bulgaria to Bosnia, was under the suzerainty of the Ottomans, or at least it used to be before everyone there decided to revolt against that suzerainty and make it all the more confusing. Okay, so with that out of the way, back to the story. Romania, Bulgaria, Greece, Bosnia, Herzegovina, Montenegro, Serbia, Macedonia and Albania had all experienced Ottoman rule to some extent by 1876, and the majority of this time they were hostile to Ottoman rule and determined to establish their own respective nation-state. Romania and Bulgaria would come into being after this war, while Bosnia, Serbia and Herzegovina 
had identified themselves as separate nationalities since the Ottoman conquests of the 12th centuries. Greece and Macedonia we of course know, while Slovenia, Croatia and Albania were recreated after the dissolution of Yugoslavia in the years 1990-98. The Balkans as a geographic term is conveniently loose and hard to define, but that theatre was a key part of Europe for much of the 19th century, as nationalism made the administration of it a nightmare for both Austrian and Ottoman alike. In this narrative, that region formed just another part of the story which helps to explain why Russia and Turkey went to war for the fifth time in the 19th century, and as a casus belli, they make for a pretty interesting reading, so let's get back to it and sorry for all the constant side-noting. With the onset of rebellion across their lands, it seemed as though the Ottomans were in deep trouble. As the fringes of their European empire began to separate from the centre, joined in a holy alliance together, all the Balkan states against the vicious Turk, news began to filter back to the capitals of Europe as we saw that the Ottomans were not content to play by the rules. In a series of campaigns, Turks and their auxiliaries had massacred and... Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Destroyed villages of Bulgarians, Bosnians and others over the course of 1875. In response to these outrages, we see William Gladstone re-emerge on the British political scene. In times past, Gladstone had been content to argue for British policy from the perspective of a certain set of principles, which normally were in contrast with the conservative policy of propping up the Ottomans. The liberal mindset seemed to view the Ottomans as distinctively incapable of governing their European territories over the Christian peoples that they had subjugated hundreds of years before. Thus, when word emerged of Turkish atrocities, a movement was sparked, which historian John Charmany deemed atrocitarianism 
and which rolls off the tongue really well, so we're going to use it too. This atrocitarianism movement, or the people that followed it were called atrocitarians, sought revenge against the Turks in a Western crusade on the basis that the Ottomans had forgone their sovereignty and no longer held any moral authority in the regions they owned because of their brutality. This was of course anathema to Disraeli's ideas of what British policy should look like. Gladstone's suggested sanctions or even military responses against the Ottomans would have provided a grand pretext for Russia to jump on board, capitalising on the fact that British citizens would be more concerned with the moral force of Gladstone's atrocitarianism than with the Eastern question. Russian intervention would spell disaster because it would seem like a crusade against the evil Ottomans. The Russians would even seem like the do-gooders out for retribution against the Turks, whose downfall would presage the fulfilment of the strategic nightmare in the Dardanelles, which Disraeli had always sought to prevent. If his life's mission now became the prevention of the atrocitarian movement from getting out of control and guiding British policy towards an accommodation with Russia, then the Prime Minister would have to find a way to outlast the outrage that the Ottoman actions spawned. This would be easier said than done, though, as Gladstone successfully capitalised upon the outrage in 1876. It was in 1876 that the main event of the revolts against the Ottomans, the so-called April Uprising, occurred. During these events, the true horror of Ottoman repression was revealed, with consequences that reverberated for months afterwards. In September of 76, amidst reports that the Ottomans were slaughtering thousands of men, women and children in their attempts to put down the uprising, or when women and children, as I once said with Sean, William Gladstone released his pamphlet, The Bulgarian Horrors and the Question of the East. Within its 40 or so pages, Gladstone made an appeal to the hearts and minds of the British public, saying... In default of parliamentary action and a public concentrated as usual, we must proceed as we can with impaired means of appeal. But honour, duty, compassion, and I must add shame, are sentiments never in a state of coma. The working men of the country whose condition is less affected than that of others by the season have to their honour led the way and shown that the great heart of Britain has not ceased to beat and the large towns and cities now following in troops are echoing back, each from its own place, the mingled notes of horror, pain and indignation. Yet it was when he addressed the issue at hand, at precisely what it was that the Ottomans had done, that Gladstone's tone became more incendiary. He wrote, By a slow and difficult process, the details of which I shall presently consider, and through the aid partly of newspaper correspondence and partly of the authorised agent of a foreign state, but not through our own parliament or administration or establishments abroad, we now know in detail that there have been perpetuated under the immediate authority of a government to which all the time we have been given the strongest moral and, for part of the time, even material support, crimes and outrages, so vast in scale as to exceed all modern example, and so unutterably vile as well as fierce in character, that it passes the power of heart to conceive and of tongue and pen adequately to describe them. These are the Bulgarian horrors, and the question is, what can and should be done, either to punish or to brand or to prevent? In a sense, the question could have been replaced as, what would Disraeli do? Disraeli, that statesman determined to maintain the Ottoman Empire at all costs against Russia, 
was faced in 1876 with confirmed reports of atrocities which demanded his attention. In one of the many newspaper reports of the era which captured the public's imagination and so persuaded them towards Gladstone's course of action, J.A. McGahan, a primary eyewitness and journalist for the London Daily News, provided Britain with terrible imagery, but also moral dilemmas. In this extract from August 1876, he recounts the events of Batak, the massacre in Bulgaria which cost the lives of thousands of citizens. Current estimates range from 1,500 to as high as 7,000. McGahan noted, But let me tell you what we saw at Batak. The number of children killed in these massacres is something enormous. They were often spitted on bayonets, and we have several stories from eyewitnesses who saw the little babes carried about the streets, both here and at Alukni, on the points of bayonets. The reason is simple. When a Mohammedan has killed a certain number of infidels, he is sure of paradise, no matter what his sins may be. It was a heap of skulls, intermingled with bones from all parts of the human body, skeletons nearly entire and rotting, clothing, human hair and putrid flesh lying there in one foul heap, around which the grass was growing luxuriantly. It emitted a sickening odour, like that of a dead horse, and it was here that the dogs had been seeking a hasty retreat when our untimely approach interrupted them. The ground is covered here with skeletons, to which are clinging articles of clothing and bits of putrid flesh. The air was heavy with the faint, sickening odour that grows stronger as we advance. It is beginning to be horrible. With the horrendous imagery McGahan conjured up and the impressions he gave of the Ottoman character, it is little wonder that Gladstone's most infamous line from his pamphlet echoed this view, thus capturing the public's imagination of the barbaric Turk of the East. Gladstone wrote of the Turk that They were, upon the whole, from the black day which they first entered Europe, the one great anti-human species of humanity. Wherever they went, a broad line of blood marked the track behind them, and as far as their dominion reached, civilization disappeared from view. They represented everywhere government by force, as opposed to government by law. Disraeli had originally hoped to ignore the reports of the massacres, and had famously referred to the original reports of Turkish actions as coffee house gossip, i.e. mere rumours aimed at torpedoing his chosen policy with Turkey. Yet with Batak and the publicity which followed Gladstone's forceful pamphlet, Disraeli was pressured by public anger into promising an investigation. For Disraeli, British foreign policy could never be a moral question. It had to be based instead on the strategic interest. It was all very well for Gladstone to cry foul of the Ottoman actions and demand retribution, but if Britain acquiesced, then its entire security system would tumble down under the weight of an opportunistic Russia. Acting in the name of an outraged Christian Europe, as long as Disraeli remained mum on the issue of Ottoman atrocities, Russia would know that she could not count on a free hand, and thus she wouldn't throw caution to the wind and pounce on Constantinople. To send this message of silence to St. Petersburg, though, Disraeli had to outlast the outrage, which Gladstone was determined to make as difficult as possible for him to do. In the end, Disraeli needn't have worried too much, because the anticipated Ottoman collapse, while it fought off its vassals, never actually came. Thus the plan of waiting for a Turkish collapse and then taking the spoils backfired for Russia and Austria when Ottoman forces held their own against their rebellious provinces in the Balkans. Yet, while Disraeli no doubt felt relieved that Constantinople hadn't fallen to the Bulgarians or that the Ottomans hadn't buckled under the weight of their revolts, 
he would have known that the international attention was focused on the Bulgarian atrocities and that the Russian people felt that they had to stop the Ottoman offences against their brethren once and for all. Failing that idea, Russians would otherwise have identified with the struggle of the states in the Balkans, as they had with Greece before, as a form of holy war of Orthodox Christianity against the evil Muslim Turks. Ian Jury's book, The Russo-Turkish War of 1877, explains these motivations when he writes, Pan-Slavism was a potential cocktail of emotions, including commitment to the racial solidarity of Slavic peoples, to the Orthodox Church, and liberation from Muslim rule. It gathered force during the 19th century as Balkan society at last began to evolve. The Ottoman regime was never flexible or imaginative enough to accommodate social and economic change in the region. Sporadic uprisings, repressed with medieval savagery, stoked the fires of Bulgarian, Romanian and Serbian folk memory. The Russian government attempted to exploit Slavic sentiment for its own ends, promoting the Russian Tsar as the figurehead for all Slavic peoples and states. Britain was thus in a pretty dire position at this stage. Normally, the Ottoman Empire enjoyed firm British support due to its strategic position as a bulwark against Russian expansion into the Mediterranean, but by early 1877, Britain was almost overwhelmingly anti-Ottoman in terms of public opinion, following the news of the Bulgarian massacres and the complete failure of the Ottomans to do anything about it. Anti-Ottoman opinion could very easily translate itself into pro-Russian opinion if Disraeli wasn't careful, and indeed Gladstone did argue for action on the moral basis that Russia was far less morally threatening to British principles than the unholy Ottomans had been. These arguments struck a chord with the spirited British populace, and Disraeli faced the problem of trying to justify his foreign policy to an angry, well-informed public, while his arch-political rival threatened to acquire his position as Prime Minister. As Disraeli attempted to prepare his colleagues to oppose Russia, Lord Derby found a solution which all could abide by, a conference in Constantinople to be attended by all the relevant powers, except, of course, the Ottomans. So it was that, during the Constantinople conference, from the 23rd of December 1876 to early January 1877, the great powers of Russia, Britain, France, Italy, Austria and Germany deliberated over the question of the Ottoman lands, particularly in the case of Bulgaria. Eventually, to soothe the tensions of all sides, an agreement was reached by the representatives to partition Bulgaria into two autonomous zones, still under Ottoman suzerainty, while portions of Bosnia and Herzegovina would become semi-independent states under joint German, Austrian and Russian protection. The terms were passed with much enthusiasm and eagerness to the Turks, whom the great powers believed and just assumed would do the sensible thing and not provoke foreign opinion by dragging their heels on the question of reforming. Then it was learned on the 17th of January 1877, to the shock of all, that the Ottoman vizier had refused to ratify the treaties laid out at the Constantinople Conference. In other words, the entire endeavour had been a waste of time. Faced with this reality, Tsar Alexander came under new pressures at home to do something forceful, just as Disraeli feared would happen. As the domestic pressures in Russia pushed the Tsar to make war in the name of the national and strategic interest of pan-Slavism and the state itself, Russian diplomats became more active in their efforts to seek the non-intervention of her neighbours in the coming conflict. 
The last thing Russia wanted was to be held back from success by her three Emperor's League partners, so Bismarck was approached first. With great expectations that the Iron Chancellor would pay the favour back which Bismarck had enjoyed in the 1860s, and remain neutral in the event of a war between Russia and the Ottoman Empire. As Jonathan Steinberg explains, Bismarck faced the equally delicate question of support for the Russians, who had not forgotten their aid to Prussia in the unification of Germany. The Tsar and his Chancellor Gorchakov wanted their reward in the form of overt German support for Russian intervention, or at least German sponsorship of a conference at which Russia could achieve their Balkan interests without war. Knowing full well that another conference was out of the question, Bismarck became increasingly stressed at the rate at which Russia pressed for an answer from him. The German ambassador to Russia, General von Schweinitz, was busy hunting in the Austrian Alps and couldn't be reached by either the Russians or Germans, so Chancellor Gorchakov instead used a less experienced German representative, the German military attaché, Bernhard von Werder, to get his message to Berlin. The message required a simple yes or no answer, guys. Would Germany act as Russia had acted in 1870 if Russia went to war with Austria? This question was an important one because if Russia invaded the Balkans for whatever reason and tried to establish hegemony over it, even if such actions were in the name of pushing back the anti-human Ottomans, pretty much everyone could be sure that Austria would respond with an act of war, since the Austrians had always viewed the Balkans as her area of interest, and indeed during the Crimean War the Russians had been threatened by, well, if you remember correctly, the massive Austrian army, gathering menacingly on the Austro-Russian borders. And if you cast your mind back to the Crimean War, you'll remember that there was good reasons for being concerned about what Austria would or wouldn't do, in the event that the Russians were forced to move in to the Balkans, for the sake of the Balkans' security, of course. If the Russians invaded the Balkans, it was expected that, well, in St. Petersburg at least, Vienna would declare war on her. If Austria declared war on Russia, then Germany would be expected to pick a side. But Bismarck didn't want to pick a side. He wanted everyone to get along because he required the cooperation of Austria and Russia in an alliance with Germany, since the removal of either from that alliance would push them into the arms of France. Bismarck was always thinking about the long-term strategic goal of Germany, and this goal was to ensure Germany's security by isolating France. Thus, the seemingly secure agreement between the three emperors, which... Bismarck had entrusted German security too, appeared to be blowing up in his face by early 1877. It would take some serious diplomatic manoeuvring to prevent this crisis from escalating into full-blown war, and we'll see how Bismarck gets on with this in the next episode. Because, not to spoil the thing, but a certain foreign secretary by the name of Lord Darby was thinking the exact same thing. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 